The, um, the over-under at the 7.30 service is always whether or not there will be more people at the start of the service in the congregation or the choir. Uh, we didn't quite make it this morning, but thank you for your efforts to get us there. It does make a difference. Um, I appreciate very much you being here early. Uh, Fifteen years ago, when I was working as a management consultant, um, I had a client, uh, the Georgia Pacific uh, Mill, in particular the Georgia Pacific Paper Mill in Bellingham, Washington. Uh, this particular unit made toilet paper. The problem is they were not making any money making toilet paper, and I had been uh, hired to help lead a team of management and labor that was trying to fix that. Um, the first thing that we set out to do was to just develop a very clear, simple presentation to, to everybody that was working there about what the situation actually was. How the mill made money, how to understand the basic financial overview, and to highlight the fact that we weren't making any money. In order to, to get this to be palatable, we had sort of stripped it down and we were comparing the mill to a, a child operating a lemonade stand. By the time it rolled out, we were ready to roll it out. It was actually an adult operating a beer stand, but uh, you know those things change, and nobody thought that a toilet paper stand was a good idea. So that was the model, and uh, we were ready to roll it out when accounting heard what our plans were, and they stepped in and said, no, uh, we make these presentations. We're the ones in charge of explaining the financial situation to everyone, and we do this once a quarter. This is our job, not yours. Well, we said, well, we've got a slightly different idea here, and, uh, you know, we just want a, just a very brief overview. We would like to do this, and they said no. So I said, well, why don't you come give your presentation to us so then we can talk more intelligently about what we're talking about. So the director of accounting came in and gave what was a two, two-and-a-half-hour presentation to our team, at the end of which I, for one, understood less about what was going on than I did at the beginning and lost in all their information was the fact that we were losing money. So a couple days later, I went to accounting, and I, I just sort of appealed to them. And I explained, the reason nobody asked any questions is actually not because you did such a great job. It's because most of the people were asleep, and those that weren't asleep didn't understand anything that you had said. Well, I appealed for a simple, brief overview, and the director of accounting said no. I tried again from a different direction, and I pushed a little bit. Things got tense. At one point, uh, she explained that she actually didn't think it was a good idea for everyone at the company to know that we were losing money, at which point I said, well, then your presentation was brilliant because nobody understood any of it. And things got a little more tense. In the end, she won. Sort of. The mill manager stated that accounting would continue to make the presentations. We were shut down from doing that. 
However, three years later, the entire operation was closed at the cost of about 1,000 jobs. I have occasionally uh, reminded myself of that and said, don't make the mistake of the accounting department at Georgia Pacific. When you get a chance to explain something, explain it as simply as you can and don't hide the bad news. To that end today, I want to explain Easter. The good news is there's a lot of good news. But there is bad news as well. And as a matter of fact, you can't really understand the good news if you don't understand the bad news. And let me just acknowledge, as always, you are free to um, believe what I say, to accept what I say, uh, and to, to affirm that the tomb was empty because Christ rose from the dead, or not. You're free to believe, as many do, that Christianity is a superstitious crutch for those that are weak. I believe it, and I want to do my best to explain it to you. To that end, I have four points or four claims and a story. Claim number one. This book is a divine book given to us by God to help us understand what's going on. It was a book written by people, but supernaturally inspired by God, given to us so we can understand what's actually going on. For starters, it answers the the big questions that we should be asking. Who am I? Where did I come from? What's expected of me? What ultimately matters? What happens to me when I die? It answers these questions principally by telling a story. Contrary to many people's belief, this is not a collection of morality lessons and inspirational tales designed to encourage us to try harder to be better. This is a story of our rescue. This is a story that, that includes the bad news that you and I are profoundly broken and in need of a rescuer. We are damaged. We are sinful. We we are corrupt. We are selfish. We are full of pride and lust and greed. The Bible says that we are all sinners and we fall short of the glory of God. Today, this is pretty offensive language. About as far as most people will go is to admit that mistakes have been made. But the Bible doesn't call us mistakers. It calls us sinners. And it says that the result of our sin is that we are separated from God. Point number two. Claim number two. Jesus is God. Jesus is the star of the story. He he appears on our behalf in order to rescue us. The claim here is is actually that, that Christ existed from eternity past. And he shows up on this planet, not at the beginning of his existence, but he shows up simply, and we celebrate this at Christmas, at the time when he is taking on human form. 
He has existed from eternity past as God. At the time of the incarnation, he adds humanity to deity. He does this in order to become one of us, in order to rescue us. Point number three. Our rescue hinges on Christ's death. The Bible contends that Jesus died in our place. He died to pay our moral debt. In fact, the Bible contends that Jesus was born to die. Okay? He did many things while he was here. He taught, he, he loved, he gave us the greatest ethical system that we have. He cared especially for those who were on the margins of society, the broken, the poor, the oppressed. He, he did many amazing things. But this book suggests that the, the greatest thing that he did, and indeed the reason he showed up, was so that he could die in our place. That was his assignment. The Bible is, in one sense, all about Jesus. The Old Testament is pointing forward to Jesus. The Gospels in particular, the four accounts of his life. The rest of the New Testament is pointing back to Jesus and these four accounts. And these four accounts, these four Gospels, are not biographies per se. They are accounts principally of his death. They don't tell us a lot of things that you would expect a biography to say. They tell us a little bit about his birth, a little moment when he's 12, and then they focus on the last few years of his life. And really, most of the text, half of it in the Gospel of John, a third in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, is focused on his death and the days right around it. Some people have suggested that we think of the Gospels not as biographies, but as the account of Christ's death with long introductions. That's because his death is the hinge point of the entire story. Our rescue hinges on Christ's death. That's because we have a debt that cannot be paid in any other way. Again, this is the bad news. I'm trying not to bury it. I'm trying to make it as clear as I can make it. We have a moral debt. Now, some people ask, why can't God simply dismiss the debt? Why can't God simply ignore the debt? Right? When somebody does something wrong, why can't God just say, well, it doesn't really matter. We're fine. Move forward. After all, that's what I do. When somebody hurts me or offends me, right, I eventually get over it and I go, we're good. Let's move on. Well, the truth is, when we sin, we incur a debt, and that debt is something that somebody always has to pay. When somebody wrongs somebody else, there is uh, a payment that needs to be made by one party or the other. Forgiveness always has to be paid for. Let me explain it this way. If you invite me over to your house for dinner, um, 
I pick up my glass and in an absolute klutzy moment, drop it. And I drop my glass over my plate and it lands on your plate, this nice piece of china, and it breaks it. I feel stupid, embarrassed, horrible, and I will quickly try to clean up the mess and to say, I'm, I'm sorry, I, w- I will replace this. And you will s- say, no, 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 don't worry about it. It's no big deal. Forget about it. I go, I, I can't believe I did this. I can't believe How many times have I picked up a cup and I hear I dropped this? I'm sorry. I'm, I'm really, I'm going to replace it. They go, no, 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 don't. We're done. Forget about it. You say, it's it's not even an issue. I forgive you. Let's just move on. Okay, well, you forgive me. And in that situation, you pay for the plate. Somebody always has to pay. You're either out the plate or you buy a new plate. Somebody always has to pay. Let me give another illustration because that one's simple. Life is seldom that simple. Let's imagine that you, uh, you implicate somebody in a crime, and they, on the basis largely of your testimony, go to prison. And they're in prison for 10 years. And then new evidence emerges, and it's clear that they're actually not guilty. How are you going to pay that debt? How are you going to give them 10 years back? You can't right? They pay. Somebody always has to pay. And what we have in this story is the idea that God pays. God says, somebody has to pay, I will, right? And the way he pays, unbelievably, is through the death of his son. Our sin actually causes a problem for God. If you read through the Bible, the way it it is presented is that God, as an almighty God, can do pretty much anything and do it quickly. Speak things into existence, part the Red Sea, send food, manna out of heaven. He can, you know, bring water out of a rock. He can, he can, Jesus can calm the storm, walk on water. None of these multiply food to feed 5,000 people. None of these are a problem. But our sin, that's actually a problem. And it doesn't get dealt with quickly. And the cost, ultimately is the death of his son. Jesus takes our sin upon himself and bears the punishment, pays the debt, so that we can go free. Now, please understand something here. The, the, the story, the appeal, the good news is not that you should go out and try harder, that you should be religious, that you should show up at church more, right? that you should, you should do more acts of kindness. All those things may be absolutely true, but that's not the story. That's not the gospel. That's not the good news. It's not that we're reaching up to God. It's that God reaches down. And it is a gift. It's nothing that we earn. 
Both religious and irreligious people have the same problem. We all fall short of the glory of God. We do not merit God's love. But for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. He pays the debt. It's very expensive, but he paid our debt. And that leads to the fourth claim. Christ rose from the dead. Jesus defeated death. That's what Easter is all about. The celebration that's taking place among billions of people today is that the tomb was empty. Right, that 40 hours after he went into the grave, he emerged again. This was not a resuscitation like happens in hospitals today where somebody dies, but two minutes or five minutes later they're brought back to life. Okay, they will die again. Christ had a new immortal body, an eternal body, never to die again. The the resurrection is also, it's not a metaphor, right? It's not saying that Christ lives on in people's hearts and and in the smile of every child. That's not what's going on here. And it's not a spiritual resurrection, right? The, The tomb was actually empty. The body was gone because it had come back to life. The claim is that Jesus, fully God, at Christmas became fully man while remaining fully God. He did that in order to die in our place and pay our moral debt. And then he rose again from the, from the grave because you can't keep a good man down. And he's the only good man. We're not. He defeated death. Now, <clears throat> there's obviously more to the story than that, and, and it continues from there. We see if, that, that after he rose from the dead, Christ explains everything, explains how he's the center of the story in the Old Testament and beyond. We see how he commissioned a church. We see how he then, 40 days later, ascended into heaven from where he will send the Holy Spirit to empower those people who accept the gift of forgiveness of sins and eternal life. And we read in the book of Acts about how the church began to spread as people began to tell their friends and neighbors, hey, the the Messiah has come. God has made a way back. We can be forgiven. It's not about our efforts. It's about the free gift of God. There is someone to follow. His name is Jesus. As that story spread, we see how, how the church spread throughout Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and Rome. And then the book of Acts ends 30 years later. But we see in the history books how the church spread throughout the Roman Empire and spread throughout the world. And it's, it, it is now the, the, the church, for all its faults, is now the, the oldest, the largest, the most ethnically diverse the most geographically diverse institution in the history of the world. And it's made up of people who are saying, God has made a way back for us. We can have our sins forgiven. Our moral debt can be paid. We can gain eternal life. That's the claim. That's the story. Now, generally at Easter, at this point... I go this direction. And this direction is to say, please understand, the claim here is not a faith claim, it's a historical claim. 
The claim is there was a real person named Jesus. He lived a real life. He died a real death. And he really, really came back to life. And then we can look at at the evidence for the resurrection. And we can look at the other theories and how other people have tried to explain it. We can look at the good reasons to believe that the story is true. We're not asked to believe on the basis of nothing. So typically... On Easter, I try to set in front of you the evidence, the historical case for the resurrection of Christ. This year, I want to go in a slightly different direction. Hey, I've I've posted all that. If that's what what you came for or you don't think there is good historical evidence, all that is posted on our website. And you can go there today and you can read about that. I want to go in a different direction. I want to go back to this idea that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. And I want to do this because that claim is often tired. And we don't, I think, fully appreciate the claim that is being made. And a few years ago, I had an experience that that dramatically changed my understanding of this. I was uh, a couple, a friend, a friend and I, each taking our youngest sons, uh, sailed across Lake Michigan. It was, uh, it was uh, late July, and it takes about 14, 15 hours in a 35-foot sailboat to sail across Lake Michigan. We went straight across, straight across to South Haven, and uh, the plan was, because we left early in the morning, sail over there, have dinner in South Haven, spend the night on the boat, get up really early, and sail back. But when we got up really early the next morning, uh, the weather had changed, high winds, big waves, and we said, nah, we don't want to do this. So we'll just spend an extra day here, and we'll leave tomorrow morning. So we wandered around South Haven for a while and um, did some things. And then in the afternoon, we said, well, we ought to take advantage of these really big waves. Let's go to the beach and let's go, go swimming and body surfing. And we did that and had an unbelievable time for about 20 or 30 minutes. And then the waves got even bigger. And Dan and I said, this is getting a little bit out of hand. So we said to our two boys, okay, you know, we're going to be done got three more waves, and you need to come in. They said ten more waves. We said three more waves. And at the end of three waves, we were coming, pulling them in, and we were having a little discussion standing in the water about what three means and how three means three, and we're done, and we're going in. And at that point, uh, we heard some, uh, some cries, and we quickly realized that uh, a family had been caught in a riptide, and had been carried out along the pier. And they were about 100 yards down the beach and about 100 yards out next to the pier. So we ran there as as quickly as we could. And when we got to the pier, they had pulled out uh, all the kids. They pulled out uh, a couple of the adults. There was just one uh, member of the family that was left. He was a very uh, large man, 300, 350 pounds, and he was face down in the water. And there were, there were three people in the water trying uh, to help him. And Dan sort of took charge, and we tried a handful of different things from the dock to try and help these guys that were in the water 
deal with this man. And the problem is the waves were huge, and there's a, it's, a, it's a cement pier, and people were getting smashed into the cement and getting, and, and really, it was a, a horrific situation. And after four or five minutes of trying different things, uh, Dan and I looked at each other. We were being held over the dock, and we said, this isn't working. And, and so we were pulled up, and, I, and we looked around at anything else we could do, and I said, I'm going in. And Dan said, no, 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 don't do that. And I said, we got to do something. And he said, he said, Mike, this guy has been face down five or six minutes, at least, maybe ten. He said, he goes, those other three guys are in trouble. They just don't know it yet. He goes, we've got to get them out. And he was right. And it was very challenging for us to get those three guys out of the water. After we did... There's now 150 people on the dock, including uh, fire department, police, and, and, and so we are uh, dismissed. And we, we find our, our sons and sort of hug silently and, and start walking down this pier in silence. And we get to the end and we sit on the beach and we spend the next 45 minutes to an hour, hour and a half just talking about what has happened, and trying to figure out what we could have done, what we should have done. And we, we went through every scenario that we could come up with. And in the end, we decided that uh, we really, as counterintuitive as it was, the only shot we actually had is if we had, is if we had gone into the, uh, if we had flotation devices and we had, we had tried to take that guy out of the riptide, and swim out into the lake and then break through the riptide and begin to pull him back, which um, we, we, just, we, we were not thinking that way at all. And we talked about the fact that had we continued to try and do what we did, it would never have worked, and that if I had jumped in with our current plan, that wouldn't have worked, and we probably wouldn't have gotten those three guys out. So... Uh, Throughout the rest of the day, we kept coming back to it and rethinking it. And then we, of course, had a 15-hour sailboat ride back across the lake the next day, and we kept thinking about it. And occasionally, over the course of the next uh, couple weeks, I would talk with Jason about it, just to hear how he was sort of thinking about this and processing it. And I continued to be bothered by this, in particular bothered that I didn't jump in. As much as it was clear to me, that that would have made a bad situation worse. At least it would have been something. Well, about three months later, early in the morning, I'm, I'm, the alarm's gone off, I'm walking down the hall, uh, headed towards the coffee pot, and I generally uh, pray a prayer that I learned a few years ago from a British theologian, and it, the prayer goes like this, good morning, Heavenly Father, good morning, Lord Jesus, good morning, Spirit of God, Heavenly Father, I praise you. You are the creator of everything everywhere. Lord Jesus, I praise you. You're the savior of the world. Spirit of God, I praise you. You are the sanctifier of God's peace. Glory to the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit as it was in the beginning, now and ever shall be. Heavenly Father, I pray that today I would live in your presence and bring you joy. Lord Jesus, I pray that today I would pick up my cross, die to self, and follow you. And Spirit of God, I pray that today... Your fruit would ripen in my life. You would fill me. And that your love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, and self-control would fill me. 
Holy, precious, triune God, one God in three persons, have mercy on my soul. Well, I, I often pray that prayer, again, as I'm walking towards the coffee pot, but I don't pray it exactly the same way every day. And this time, as I was praying that prayer, instead of saying, Lord Jesus, you are the Savior of the world, I said, Lord Jesus, you saved me. And as soon as I said that, I thought he would have jumped. Right? He would have jumped. And I thought, no, 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 jumping, that was a bad idea. Jumping was a bad plan. And I thought he still would have jumped. He did jump. I just stopped on the stairs. He did jump. I said, Mike, jumping likely would have meant that you would have died without doing any good. I thought Jesus knew he was going to die. He still jumped. He traded his life for mine. And I was so shocked by this. It's not a new truth, but it just came at me in a new way. I literally just sat down on the stairs, walking downstairs. I just sat there, and I was thinking about this, and then I had a different thought. I realized that the Father sent the Son. It had never occurred to me to send my Son in to help this man. Reality is, he's a varsity water polo player. He's the one that should have gone in. Never occurred to me, didn't occur to me for the next three months that I should have sent in my son. Unthinkable to me. And yet, that is what God did. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. He was born to die in our place because he's a just God. He can't just dismiss our sin. Somebody has to pay. But he is a loving God. And so he said, I'll pay. I will send my son to pay everyone else's debt. That's the story. That's the claim. This book helps us understand what's actually going on. Jesus is the star, the hero, the rescuer. Our rescue hinges on his death. He rose again from the grave because he's God. He paid our debt, he defeated death, and he rose again. And he will rule and reign forever and ever. And a Christian is somebody who places their faith in Christ. It's not somebody who is better than other people, more religious. It's not because you try harder. It's not because you have more good than bad. It doesn't work. We all fall short of the glory of God. A, A Christian is somebody who accepts that gift of grace and says, I'm following this man. I'm going to do everything I can to be like him, not in an effort to earn God's favor, but because my debt has been paid by Christ. That's what we celebrate today. We celebrate an empty tomb. We celebrate a savior of the world. So I'm going to, um, as I generally do, I am going to close in prayer. Only this time what I'm going to pray is a prayer that um, 
might be a next step for some of you. If you're willing to put your faith down, if you're willing to take a step and to declare your allegiance to Christ and to ask for his forgiveness, then I would invite you to pray a prayer something like this. Let's bow. Heavenly Father, thank you for your unbelievable love. I cannot fathom that you would send your son to die in my place. I acknowledge that I am a broken, sinful person, that I fall short, that I'm never who I could be. I I not only don't keep your standards, I don't keep my own. And I need someone to pay that debt. And Lord Jesus, I choose you. Thank you for the life that you lived. Thank you for dying for me. I declare that you are the one I want to follow and be like. I I want to be more like you, and I, I trust you as my Savior and Lord. Spirit of God, come and indwell me now and help me to become more like Christ. In his name I pray.